Good morning. Good morning. Let's begin with prayer this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and for your grace and for the truth of your kingdom. We ask that your spirit will join us this morning and, and bless us as we take this message about you to the world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So good news, the audio version of The Remedy is now available at SoundCloud for streaming. And I want to give you just a little sample this morning, about two minutes of what this is like. It had become quite popular to be immersed in water by John. So John challenged the crowds. You children of that poisonous snake, who told you that you would be safe from destruction by running here? Rituals change nothing. You must experience a new heart motivated by love and produce fruits consistent with a heart of love. And don't begin claiming false security by saying, We are genetic descendants of Abraham. God could take these stones and create biological children of Abraham. The axe is about to fall. The time to choose is now. Every person who does not, like a green tree, produce good fruit, will, like a dead tree, be cut down and thrown into the fire. What do we need to do? The crowd begged. John told them, Live in harmony with God's design of love. Live to give. The person with two coats should give one to a person who has none, and those who have food should share with those who are hungry. When tax collectors came to be immersed in water, they asked John, Teacher, what should we do? John told them, Be honest in all your dealings. Don't collect one cent more than is required. Then some soldiers asked, What are we supposed to do? John instructed them, You are in a position of trust and responsibility, so carry out your duties honorably. Don't use your power to exploit, extort, abuse, or accuse people falsely. Be honest in all your dealings and be content with your wages. So that's just a little sample of what, what the quality is like. Very nicely done. Very. Did you like it? Yes. Okay, so the whole New Testament is now available. SoundCloud is an app you can download for your device. You can also access it via the Internet. You do not have to have an account. And don't sign up for their membership, which is like $12 a month or something. You can access our material free. There's a link in the notes for people who want the link to go straight to SoundCloud. When you get to SoundCloud, you type in Remedy New Testament or Remedy Bible, and you'll search until you find it. And then once you find it, then you can like it, and it'll help you find it easier next time you go. We don't have any downloads as offline available at this time. So if you have some suggestions how best to deliver that, we're, we're investigating. CDs aren't seeming the thing that people are doing these days, so making CDs to deliver it didn't seem to be the idea. We could have made it downloadable on pl platforms like this or Audible, but they would then charge you $12 a month to download it. Uh, and we didn't really feel like, since we're giving it away, we wanted to make you guys pay money to them and generate income for them to get a free resource from us. Memory sticks would have to be 30 gigabytes to get you the entire thing, and those are easily repurposed. So today's lesson is Little Time of Trouble, Lesson 10 in the Quarterly Family Seasons. And the first paragraph in Sunday's lesson says, The writer of Proverbs makes a very astute observation. The start of an argument is like a water leak. So stop it before real trouble breaks out. Once begun, a conflict can become incredibly hard to shut down. According to Romans 14, 19, we can prevent conflict by following after two things, that which makes for peace 
and that with which one may edify another. How much more so are these principles crucial to harmony in family? Do you agree that uh, a good goal would be to try to stop an argument or disagreement before it escalates? Wouldn't that be a good goal? The old Barney Fife rule, nip it in the bud, nip it, nip it, nip it, right? Okay, you all remember that. Okay. The lesson points us to Romans 14, 19 as giving us tools to do this, which reads, let us therefore make every effort to do that which leads to peace and to mutual edification. So what do you think that means? And how does this help prevent conflict? For instance, can a person take an action that they believe will lead to peace, but in actuality, it causes more division. I'm doing this because I want to bring more peace, but what they're doing causes more division. For instance, when Peter initially agreed with the circumcision group from Jerusalem, do you think Peter was trying to create more conflict or avoid it? What was he trying to do? Was he trying not to be a a peacemaker? Let's not cause conflict here. But if Paul didn't correct Peter... Would Peter's actions have actually led to more peace or greater conflict and division? Hmm. What is the reason that an action taken with the best of intentions could cause more division? Why? Why can an action with the best of intentions actually cause division and conflict rather than healing and harmony? Why would that be? This requires thinking beyond the motive. He was talking about food and drink. And that is not a big issue. So why bring it up? Okay. All righty. They're not ready for the truth. Not ready for the truth? So again, the question, how is it that an action with real sincerity could actually cause more conflict? How about if it's out of harmony with reality? If it's actually contradictory to the way God built reality to to work? You're introducing discord, in other words, disharmony to God's order. But you're doing it with real sincerity. I'm really sincere about this. If, If it goes against how God constructed reality to work, will it result in more harmony? Even if you're sincere about it. It will eventually cause fragmentation and problems. It might, in the short term, like Peter, might have had, a, in that little circle of people, he might have had less harmony with those, that small group, but in the long run, if it wasn't corrected, it would have caused much more fracturing and disharmony. Even... No, I'm going to go farther now. Thank you. Okay. So why was it wrong for Peter to side with the circumcision group? Was it only because they clung to symbolic, ritualistic stuff that has no real value, or was there another reason that uh, uh, uniting with them like he did was wrong? In other words, did the circumcision group have an additional error on the importance of circumcision, or have a deeper error in the way they operated, namely the method they wanted to employ to advance their view. Did they have a methodological problem in addition to a belief problem? How did the circumcision group in the New Testament, it comes up all the time, want to advance their belief in the physical rituals? What was their method they wanted to employ? 
coercion of some kind. Ostracization. (laughs) Ostracized people. Okay? Coercion, pressure, intimidation, shaming, uh, denying privileges of some kind. In other words, using authority, coercive pressure of some kind. That's the method that group wanted to use, wasn't it? What happens when we try to coerce others? What's the natural result? Is there, is there a violation of God's law happening when we try to coerce others? It's the law of liberty. And what's the natural result when you try to coerce somebody rather than convert somebody? Rebellion. That's exactly right. So you get more division. I'm going to suggest it wasn't just the doctrine, the ideas of ritualistic stuff, but because they were holding to that ritualistic stuff as having value, buried beneath that was their imperial law construct. We have to do this and because we want to help people. And if we want to help people, then we have to enforce it because that's what you do when you have a law you have to enforce. And so they ultimately it was the methodology that they wanted to, which would always lead to more division and rebellion. In the current debate over women's ordination in the church, what methods are being used by the two sides? It is one group advocating for liberty, for freedom, while allowing the various conferences and unions to have the freedom, you know, allowing the various conferences and the unions to have the freedom to decide what works best for their churches, but never forcing anybody. Leave people free not to if they don't want to. Is the other side using methods of freedom, or are they working to use coercive pressure, enforcement, compliance, threats to potential position, if you don't comply with the rule. Is it really about the question of ordination? Or is the bigger question about, regardless of the thing, what methods do we employ when we reach out to help others see the light that we believe they need to see? By the way, this is why the SDA church was set up the way it was set up, and was set up with local control, not central control, for the very reason to allow groups to advance in the truth at their own pace because people advance in truth at different rates. And only when the world church as a body collectively is advanced to the same point does the organization make it a understood truth for the whole organization. But that's only a confirmation of what the world body now believes. It's not a vote to tell the world body what to believe. This is what's backwards. When you have an imperial system, the people on high tell everybody below how to believe and how to behave. When you have a system that operates on truth, truth advances from person to group in a manner that takes time for cultural biases and other things to be replaced with truth. And that's why truth never advances with the whole world waking up one day and everybody going, oh, we all see it the same. No, it advances slowly with 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 uh, you know step forward a step back like the just look at the whole advancement of any truth germ theory or whatever it might be it never happens in one generation any new epiphany takes time for groups to contemplate and typically I will tell you major advances in any truth whether it's science whether it's theology typically requires the generation in power to die off. That's why they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years to get rid of that generation. This is what happened when germ theory finally advanced. The people who were resistant to it died off, and the younger people took over. Monday's lesson, I I wanted to touch back, because it's talking about principles, uh, relationships, and harmony in the home, and this marriage is what they're talking about here. But in, in Lesson 7 on Sunday, they quoted from Advent, Adventist Home, 
page 179, I'm going to read something from Adventist Home 179. It says the following. It says, The cause of division and discord in families and in the church is separation from Christ. To come near to Christ is to come near to one another. The secret of true unity in the church and in the family is not diplomacy, not management, not a superhuman effort to overcome difficulties, though there will be much of this to do, but a union with Christ. Picture a large circle from the edge of which are many lines all running to the center. The nearer these lines approach the center, the nearer they are to one another. The closer we come to Christ, the nearer we shall come to one another. Do you see according to this? First off, do you agree or disagree with that? I agree too. So then, then what is the key to unity? In family, in relationship, in church, where? What's the key? It is not by focusing on our differences, for sure, but it's not by focusing on our similarities either. Because that puts the focus on us. It's not by focusing on doctrinal conformity or a list of right rules. It is not by focusing on proper government or legislation. It is not by focusing on human rights. It is by focusing on Jesus. This is the key. As we focus on him, we become more like him. And Satan knows that if we don't focus on Jesus, that we lose heart and we fragment. He knows that we focus on Jesus and put him as, as the center of our hearts and lives, our desires, our longings, that we'll be transformed to become like him. This is a function of a design law. The law of worship, by beholding you become changed. You cannot avoid becoming more like Christ if you actually make him first in your life. Meditate, focus, worship, adore, admire, pursue, you will become more like him. You can't avoid it. You also can't avoid becoming more like the world if you make things of the world first in your life. It's a design law. Neurobiologically, characterologically, and that choice is ours. Where do we put our affections? Where do we put our focus? So the Bible says, fix your eyes on the 27, 28 fundamental beliefs. Is that where we fix our eyes, on the 28 fundamental beliefs? Fix your eyes on Sabbath keeping. No, fix your eyes on Christ. That's right. So Satan knows that. So Satan wants to take our minds off of Jesus. And I've listed some ways he does that. How does he get us to not focus on Jesus? Focus on the rules. Okay, that's one. Yes, rule-keeping. Focusing on rule-keeping, which can be focusing on sin or fear of committing sin, an obsession with avoiding to do so, formulating a long list of rules and live in fear of breaking them. How about by focusing or substituting the truth about Jesus with a false view of Jesus? So people claim they're worshiping Jesus and they claim they're focused and they might even spend a lot of time thinking about the Jesus that they worship. But Jesus said in the last day that will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform miracles in your name. Notice they're telling Jesus they're doing this in his name. They're not doing it in the name of Buddha or Hare Krishna. They're doing it in the name of Jesus. They claim Jesus is the center. What does Jesus say to them? Yet ye hence, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. So one strategy is to get people to substitute the truth about who Jesus is, his true character, for a false view. And what's the false view? That God is a God whose law works like human law, and in order to be just, he must 
punish sin, and the minimum punishment is death, and so God will kill you for your sin, but Jesus came, and he gave his life, and so we can appease or assuage or propitiate the wrath of God with the blood of a human sacrifice. That's Baal worship. That's modern-day Baal worship. That's exactly who Baal was. And so that's why the prophet Elijah has to come again to call the question. Elijah's primary purpose was to say, if God is like this, worship him. If God is like this, worship him. The primary message is to help people see God is creator, builder of reality, whose laws are the laws upon which reality work. That we have a condition that we didn't choose, we were born with it, that God is working to heal. Versus the imperial dictator God that Satan alleges him to be, a God who makes up rules and we're in legal trouble and God has to kill the rule breaker and he killed his son and if you take the legal penalty that his son provides, then God won't kill you. And, and God is waiting for a people to call the question. If God is like this, worship him. If God is like this, worship him. And the vast majority of the Christian world worships the Baal version of God. And they don't even know it, as the vast majority of Israel didn't even know it. Substituting a false version of God. How about other ways he takes our minds off Christ? Busyness of life, responsibilities, paying bills, school, work, job, kid, chores, just busyness. We get busy. Is that a way he gets us off? How about this one? Busyness in good activities, in ministry, in serving others, in, in doing pathfinders, in, in uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That we're so busy, we take our, mind, our, our focus off Christ. Busy with good stuff. How about entertainments of various kinds? We get so caught up in entertainments, games, internets, TVs, books. How about drugs, alcohol, those types of things? Those are easy ones to see. How about unhealthy relationships? We get a person in our life that takes up the place of where Christ should be. That all our attention is on that person. They're predominant. How about focusing on the doctrinal correctness, a form of Gnosticism, studying to get all the facts right. We have to have the horns identified right. We have to understand every verse of Scripture. We have to have the right definitions of everything. Uh, and that, that's where we focus our attention. So we're, we study, we go, we go to seminary, we get degrees so, so that we can, we can know all the right facts. But we don't have Christ as the center. How about religiosity? Focusing on performing the right rules, keeping the right observances, living our behavioral lives in the way that we understand ritualistically we're supposed to do, keeping the right day of worship, being baptized, getting our feet washed every 13 weeks. If we go 14 weeks, we're in trouble. (laughs) You know what I'm saying. How about traumas, diseases, losses in our life, suffering, pain of some kind, illness, cruelties that we've suffered, unfairness and injustices that we've experienced in this unjust and unfair world. How about we get focused on that? And there's truth. We have been done wrong. We have been hurt. We have lost loved ones. And that becomes the center of our life. How about false philosophies that replace God with either false gods or no gods? Look at all the mechanisms. Boy, didn't he have a lot of strategies to get us to take our eyes off Christ? We must learn, really, to keep our minds and hearts fixed on Christ. The lesson points out that we must learn to forgive people who've done us wrong. What is it that keeps people from forgiving? Why won't people forgive? What are the reasons? Pride and selfishness. Pride and selfishness is a core, okay. 
That can be, yeah. And, and pride and selfishness. How does pride and selfishness manifest? What's that look like? You've done me wrong, and I'm too proud to forgive, or I, my pride and selfishness, you don't deserve to be forgiven. Does it come out like, I'm just so much better than you, I'm not going to forgive you? Or is it more like, you don't deserve my forgiveness? What do you, th- what do you think? More like, you don't deserve it. Or you haven't asked for it. Or you haven't asked for it. Okay, other thoughts. Why won't people forgive? Fear. The fear that it will lay them open to have it happen again. Okay, so the, this, and these are some of the myths now. You're, these are the myths of forgiveness. If I forgive, I'm more vulnerable. Because when we don't forgive, we retain a certain level of usually anger, hostility, hypersensitivity. We're really to when somebody comes near that same type of exploitation, we're ready to jump on them and attack. Nobody's going to take advantage of me again. Right? It's like having a uh, a bad sunburn. Ha- imagine having a really bad sunburn. And when you have a really bad sunburn, your three year old comes to jump on your back to play. What do you do? You, you just go ow, or do you? Yank them off. <laughs> How about you ever? And I'm talking not a little. I'm bad sunburn. Bad sunburn. Your spouse comes in and gives you a big bear hug. What do you do? Do you appreciate it or do you yell and push them away? And how about somebody actually slaps you on the back? You see, the point is, when you have a bad sunburn, you lose the ability to tell the difference between touches of play, touches of love, and touches of aggression. Everything hurts and you push everyone away. And people who have been burned in this life that won't forgive walk around with this emotional, overly tender heart, and they experience hurts and injuries where none were given. Everything's painful. Now, if you actually had a real bad sunburn, a physical one, would the best strategy be Let's make, figure out a way that no one ever touches me again. Or would the best strategy be to heal the sunburn? Well, that makes sense when it's a physical sunburn. People know that. People miss it when it comes to the wounds that we get when people have wronged us. They often start putting up their little shields and their little walls, and, and they stay hypersensitive. They're afraid they'll be more vulnerable. And so they stay angry because it makes them feel like they have power. But it doesn't. It only makes them experience more hurt in life and more pain and ultimately have more conflict because they accuse people of hurting them when there was no intention. So that's good. That's one. Thinking you'd be more vulnerable. Uh, what about others? And, and underneath that one, kind of connected, forgiveness is another myth. Forgiveness means restore trust. If I forgive somebody, I've got to trust them. Many people think that. No, trust is based on the trustworthiness of the other person. Think about if you had a child, I don't care what age, but your child has got a drug problem. Your child's stolen from you. Now, if you're a loving, mature parent, the only thing in your heart is you want redemption and healing for your child. You're not out to hurt them. You're not out to get them. Your heart is a heart of forgiveness to them. But do you trust them? Do you leave your wallet laying around? No. You can have forgiveness without trust. How how about this one? Well, go ahead. There's also a misunderstanding about the nature of a wrong or sin. It's another myth. We're going to get there. (laughs) How about this one? Forgiveness equals salvation. This is a myth. Many people think this. Uh, In fact, um, this this is on the idea that God's law functions like human law, therefore sin is a legal problem, and the solution to the legal problem is we need a pardon or we need to be forgiven by the rule maker. That's what we need. Recently I had a talk with someone who told me that forgiveness costs someone. It costs you to forgive. 
And, and it costs God to forgive, and therefore Jesus had to die because it had to cost God something in order to forgive us. And he gave the analogy of if I, if I stole a million dollars from God and spent it, and, and I didn't have a million to pay him back, and God forgave me, see, it cost God a million dollars to forgive me. It costs something. Have you ever heard this argument? Yes. It's a flawed argument, deeply flawed, deeply flawed. Okay, I'm going to show you how it's flawed. First off, the million dollars is an arbitrary construct. It's not a natural con- Money is an arbitrary construct. It immediately puts us not in design law in the natural world, but it puts us in an arbitrary world of a system made up by human beings. And once you're in that system, you're already missing the kingdom of God. So you, you get out of the money because it's a false it's a false argument. But many people buy it because they're so used to it and it sounds so reasonable, and that's how we seem to function because we are humans fallen, and we function very much like that. Go to design law, though. Let's see if this analogy is a little closer. Your child uh, has disobeyed your instructions not to mess with the various stuff in the garage and, for whatever reason, drank some antifreeze. I don't know if you know what happens when you drink antifreeze. Uh, by the way, antifreeze, I've never drank it, but I've been told it's got a sweet taste to it. And the people who have drank it that I've talked to, they say it tastes sweet. And I don't know if you know, but you don't die instantly from drinking antifreeze. Antifreeze kills you in a specific way. It destroys your kidneys. And then you go into renal failure. That's how antifreeze kills you. Okay? So, let's say your child disobeyed and, and drank some antifreeze, and they're in renal failure now, and they're dying of renal failure. This is your child. Would something need to be done to you in order for you to forgive your child? Would you need something done to you to forgive your child? No, it wouldn't. Or would you instantly forgive them? And would your forgiveness, because you've forgiven them now, save your child? See, the forgiveness was never the issue. God forgives everyone. Because God is love and God forgives. He has no, 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 no restrictions on that. But what is needed in order to save your child? Besides your forgiveness, what's needed? Some cure, some remedy, right? Some cure, some remedy. And so let's say now you donate a kidney to your child, which I'm sure most of you would do. And it takes and it works. Uh, Could we say if you donate a kidney that it costs you something to save your child? Could we say that? You paid a price to save your child. Now, was the cost or price you paid necessary for forgiveness or necessary to save? to save. That's reality. It did not cost God something to forgive us. It cost him something to save and heal us. It's a big difference. And if you didn't give your kidney, you said, no, no, you disobeyed. You're dying. You made your bed. You're going to lie in it. Nope. I'm keeping my kidneys. They're mine. Can't happen. Would that cost you? Would it cost you not to give a kidney? Which, which would cost you more if your child was dying of renal failure? Which, which, which would be the higher price you would pay? To give the kidney or to not give the kidney? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him will not die, will not perish, but have everlasting life. When you understand, see this imperial law corrupts reality. It would have cost God. Once Adam sinned, it was going to cost God something. Cost him the suffering and the, and the sojourn of Christ and whatever else Christ has surrendered to be a human for all eternity. We don't know 
fully what that was. But it cost him something. Or it costs him that which he loves. But it wasn't a price to forgive us. It was a price to save us. It's a big difference. Now, I, I will say this one caveat. If you read some more, some, some texts or some writers from a different era than we live in today, from a different generation. In past generations, some authors use the word forgiveness not for what the offended person does, but for the entire transaction of reconciliation. We don't use it that way today. Forgiveness is what an offended person does to their side of the equation to bring reconciliation, and the offender repents, has the change of heart, and when forgiveness and repentance both happen, then you get reconciliation. You will read some writings in some generations past where they use the term forgiveness to describe the entire process of reconciliation. If you use it that way, then yes, we could not be forgiven without the death of Christ because we couldn't be reconciled or healed without the death of Christ. But that's not how we use it today, so I I don't... I just do that in case you read it from some other author, and it seems like it's saying that. They're actually describing the whole reconciliation process. Yes? Would not the text misunderstood easily that says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive? Yes. I can see where that would be confusing to people. Right, and so what does it actually mean? What's it mean? The people that crucified Christ on the cross, did Christ forgive them? Did he have the power to forgive them? Yes. The authority to forgive them? Remember when they, uh, the paralyzed man they let down through the roof? So that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Take up your bed and walk. Okay? So here we have the authority to forgive sins, and he forgives them. You have to be okay. willing to accept the forgiveness. Right. So from God, God forgives. Did these people accept and participate in that forgiveness? such that they were brought to repentance. The kindness of God leads us to repentance, uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 4. So did they experience and internalize that forgiveness that was freely extended, or did they reject it? So even though God forgave them, they remained in a state of being of an unforgiving pers- unforgiven person. Their hearts were not renewed. Does that make sense? Good question. Thanks for bringing that up. The last paragraph, it says... Um, You must accept that you're married to a sinner, to a being who has been damaged to some degree emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Get used to it. Accept your spouse's faults. Pray uh, your way through them. You might have to live with those faults, but you don't have to uh, uh, obsess over them. If you do, they will eat you alive. A holy and perfect God through Christ accepts us as we are. You who are hardly holy and perfect must must do the same with your spouse. She says, false. I have, I have one false vote over here. Do I have any other false votes? Okay, we have an A student. Do you get an A plus? Okay, there's something seriously wrong with the way this is stated. Because doesn't it depend on what we mean by one's fault? We have to define that. For instance, is there a difference between making mistakes and choosing evil? Is making an error in your math, a math error in your check registry and therefore accidentally overdrafting a check the same thing as purposely writing fraudulent checks? Are those the same? Now, on the surface, they could appear the same. These, both these people bounced a check. 
But they're not the same, are they? One's a mistake. One's a human foible, a flaw. I made, I, I'm, I'm not perfect in my math. The other is purposely defrauding somebody, seeking to do evil. See, we have to distinguish the faults that are simply the foibles of our fallen condition versus purposely choosing evil. We, yes, we need to accept the foibles, shortcomings, uh, the inabilities of our spouses to do certain things because of physical limitations or uh, cognitive limitations or whatever. Those are, those are the faults we have to accept. But choosing evil, if you have a spouse that knowingly and willfully is choosing evil, should you accept that? Should we accept that? I'm going to give some examples. And why? First, before I give you examples, why should a spouse who loves their spouse not accept purposefully choosing evil? Because they want to help their spouse. Because they, because they love one. Because when you choose evil, it sears your conscience, warps your character, hardens your heart. And if you love your spouse, you don't just simply accept. If you accept, you become a colluder, an enabler, a promoter. It's like going out and buying cocaine for your cocaine-addicted husband. I just accept it. It's wrong. And so, examples. Or food for your food-addicted. We, we shouldn't accept the addictions of our spouse for the reason I just gave. Should we accept infidelity? Should we accept our spouse? Well, my, my spouse just has a problem uh, visiting prostitutes. I just accept that. <laughs> Should we? Well, it's not prostitutes, it's co-workers. Just, just, just liaisons with co-workers, I accept that. Should we accept abuse of any kind? Mental, physical, emotional, spiritual, sexual abuse of any kind. Should we accept that? Well, he hits me, but he's never slept with somebody else. Well, he only, he only verbally tears me down. He just tells me I'm stupid and ugly. So we accept those types of behaviors. Why not? What's it doing to the person who's handing out those types of behaviors? It's damaging them. If you love them, you go, whoa, I can't go along quietly with this. I love you too much to see you destroy your soul this way. Should we accept betrayal of our trust? And I don't mean infidelity sexually. I mean betrayal of your trust. You've got a spouse who discloses personal things. You've got let go from your job, for instance. And you're not ready to tell your friends yet. And your spouse begins telling everybody before you're ready to tell. Should you accept betrayals? So what underlying attitude, mindset, motive can we have that actually, if we live under this umbrella, it insulates us from having hard feelings and, and divisions when the faults that are not choosing evil do come up because you're going to forget that your spouse asked you to pick something up on the way home. It's going to happen. You're going to have a day when you're a little irritable and you might say something with an edge in your voice. Uh, those things are going to happen. So what's the mindset that you can develop that will protect your marriage from having problems when those things happen? Live under umbrella of love, meaning that you both have a hard attitude that says, I know my spouse isn't perfect, but I know he or she wants to be. I know my wife loves me so much that she never wants to come up short. She never wants to make a mistake. She never wants to have any foibles come out. She wants to be a perfect wife. And so I know when a mistake happens that she's already grieving in her heart 
Because she never wants to make, and I love my wife so much. I want to be perfect. I never want to come up short. I never want to make a mistake. And she knows that when I do, I'm already sick that that, that thing came forward. And when you have an attitude between the two of you like that, then, then that marriage can easily navigate those moments of shortcomings. But you have to have that heart where you know the spouse is for the other. Tuesday's lesson focuses on our memory verse, which says, Ephesians 4.26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Oh, so much good stuff in the lesson. I don't think we're going to get to it all. Is it a sin to be angry? No. So it says in Isaiah 5.25, The Lord's anger burns against his people. But then it also says, But, O Lord, you are a compassionate and a gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and mercy. Psalms 86.15. The Bible says in Psalms 27.4, Anger is cruel. And fury overwhelming. Uh, Proverbs 29.8 says, Mockers stir up a city, but a wise man turns away anger. Ecclesiastes 7.9 says, Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. He's got a fool. But he says he gets angry. Well, the New Testament, Ephesians 4.31 says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. Be kind and compassionate. The Colossians 3.8 now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Hmm. So God needs some anger management courses. How do we make sense and harmonize the scriptures that on the surface could appear contradictory? If you're a imperial law person... Imperial law is all about behavior, the do's and the don'ts. And so the anger is all about the angry attitude. And so if you get angry, then you're wrong. If you express anger, you're wrong. If you're a design law person, though, you realize, wait a second. Hmm. There are actually some things that is quite loving and righteous and healthy to be angry about. The issue is the motive and motive of the heart and focus of the anger. Righteous anger is always motivated by love for people and focuses on destroying the sin or disease of sin in order to heal and save the people. Sinful anger is motivated by selfishness and focuses on punishing, hurting, and destroying people while perpetuating the sin and selfishness. So here's some examples. Doctors have righteous anger towards pathogens, measles, polio, Ebola, and diseases, cancer, Alzheimer's, multiple sclerosis. They seek to destroy all diseases and all pathology to heal and to save people. But doctors do not have anger towards sick and dying patients. At least mature doctors don't. Of course, doctors do get angry at activities that spread disease like people purposely spreading the HIV virus, HIV-infected individuals purposely having unprotected sex or sharing dirty needles on purpose. But doctors still love the addict or the prostitute who's spreading the disease. It's just that while seeking to cure those who are currently infected, they don't want to see more people infected. Doctors also offer remedies, antiviral meds, to help stop the disease and the spread. But when a person refuses to take the remedy, 
and to use uh, and refuses to take the medicine. Do doctors get angry only at the disease at that point? Or might they get angry at the person's refusal to take what they know will cure them? How much more if your child was dying from a disease and you were the doctor and you had a treatment that would cure them and your child refused the cure? Is there an anger there because you hate your child? Or because you're angry, it doesn't have to be this way. This is the righteous anger. So out of the remedy, Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 11, this is from the remedy. It says, and the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice offering healing and restoration, do not reject the true remedy and darken your minds as they did in the rebellion in the desert during the opportunity to partake of God's cure where your fathers broke my heart by trying their own remedies and rejecting the truth which I brought and for 40 years patiently tried to heal them. That is why I was so angry with, that, with what happened to that generation and said, their minds continually reject the healing truth and they refuse to practice my ways of health and live. So I granted them their persistent choice and said, since they refuse the truth, the remedy I freely offer, they will never be able to enter my rest and get well. Jesus also expressed this type of anger at the hardened hearts, Matthew 3, 5, and 6. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Why was he angry? Because they were opposing healing and restoration and life. What does righteous anger, which is a manifestation of love, do? to those who persistently refuse healing. What's the righteous anger do? It initially acts to restrain and to protect until the point that the person is either healed or no further intervention will be helpful. And then love lets go. And with sadness, allows the person to reap what they've chosen, pain, suffering, and death. But it never retaliates Love is angry because it didn't have to be this way. Selfish anger, on the other hand, is angry about not getting our way, not having our idea, uh, anger at having our ideas challenged or refuted, anger at having our projects or pursuits interfered with, anger at having our self-promotion thwarted or name maligned, anger at being assaulted, injured, robbed, anger at, ha- at being embarrassed, anger of envy, someone else got something that I wanted, believed I deserved, anger of perceived unfairness, uh, ang- and so on, so on, so. And you see this anger, just watch the news. For 30 seconds on the news, you will see this. 30 seconds is all it takes. Just go to any headline of any major media outlet and you'll see all over there is just all this kind of anger constantly. Wednesday's lesson. Talks about sometimes unresolved conflict and anger may develop into abuse of various kinds and all types of abuse are wrong. Do you all agree that all forms of abuse are contrary to God's character of love and should not be in the Christian life? Do you all agree with that? Then why is it that domestic violence rates, physical abuse, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse, sexual abuse are no different in in Christian marriages than non-Christian marriages, and child abuse, physical and sexual abuse of children, is no different in Christian homes than non-Christian homes? That's That's the facts. Shouldn't people who claim Jesus is their Savior actually abuse their own families less than people who deny Jesus? 
But it doesn't, it, 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 the data doesn't support that. Because I will tell you, the true gospel of Jesus Christ has been replaced with a fraud, with an imperial lie, a legal, penal lie that God's law functions no different. So people don't even look for healing and transformation of heart. What people look for is that they get some legal accounting done to their bad deeds in some mechanistic way. And there's all these ritualistic ways, and I've described some in the notes, but I'm not going to spend time on it because there's a couple other things I want to get to. Studies show that the more religious a person is, the more they're likely to abuse their family. Well, if your view of God is if I step my toe on, he's going to That's right. uh, do something horrible to me, then doesn't, it, you're saying by beholding we become changed, and if we behold that type of a God, what kind of a person will we be? Exactly. Bottom pink session says, how unfortunate that some cultures all but condone abuse of women. Why should no Christian ever fall into that kind of behavior, regardless of their culture allows what their culture allows? So, are there cultures in the world today that treat women as inferior to men, that don't allow women to be educated, own property, drive, or be independent? They subjugate women to nothing more than property. Are there cultures like that today? What about a religion that teaches that leaders must not marry and that they must remain celibate and only males can serve as priests. What about a religion that teaches that? Does that introduce some type of a hierarchy between men and women? Some type of a different status? Some type of a closer authority with God in some way? Hmm. What about churches that teach that males can be ordained but females can't? Would this introduce a disparity between men and women? Let me ask you this question for those of you that are still struggling with that. Who would you rather have as your pastor in your church, fully ordained, fully credentialed, if you had your choice, Ellen G. White or David Koresh? <laughs> oh, that's too obvious. That's too obvious. Okay, that's too easy. All right, how about this? Ellen G. White or Ted Wilson? Ted Wilson, president of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists today. Who would you rather have as your pastor, ordained and credentialed? Who do you think is in a better position to actually lead the church? If you said Ellen White, how can that be? She's female. It's not possible because her genitalia prevent that. (laughs) This is the thinking. See, the thinking when you go to gender, it's not about abilities. It's not about endowments of the spirit. It's not about equipping by God. It's not about a a closer walk with him. It's not about a knowledge of, it's only about gender. This is one of the most base forms of prejudice and bias. Thursday's lesson. We're going to close on this. First paragraph in Thursday's lesson says, it says, the writer of the Hebrews counseled, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Even when we take all steps necessary, some people who have heard us will still not listen and change. Perhaps some may offer an apology, but others will not. Either way, it is, our, to, it is to our benefit, especially when it is a family member, that we take the journey of forgiveness talked about earlier. Any concerns here? Any red flags going up? Hopefully some thinkers are going, whoa, hold on there. For instance, particularly, even when we take the steps necessary, some people who hurt us will not listen and change. What's wrong with this statement? Well, it doesn't say this. 
Some people, if they said this, I I wouldn't have a problem. If they said this. Some people who have sinned against us won't listen and change. That is not the same thing as saying some people have hurt us. See, what's wrong with determining whether you have been wronged by another based on whether you got hurt or not? Is there something wrong with using your feelings as a barometer to whether somebody has wronged you or not? That's what they're inserting here. If you've got your feelings hurt, then you've been wronged. And those, those, those obstinate people out there, they won't change. The world will not change to make me feel better. This is the actual mentality of this generation today, and it's very, very corrupt and corrosive. No, this is wrong. He said, we can be hurt in dealing with others because we're in the wrong, because we're stepping out of line, because we're doing something inappropriate. How many times... Did the religious leaders in Christ's day get upset, offended, or their feelings hurt by something Jesus was saying or doing? Many, many times. Even the apostles tried to take the, the guidance of our quarterly. They must have got a copy sent back because they said in Matthew fifteen twelve, the disciples came to him and said and asked, Do you not know that, that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this from you? Woo, they got their feelings hurt. Let's not talk like this anymore. Jesus, don't you know how to modify your behavior to be more politically correct? You're out, you're, you're not socially just, Jesus. It's one of the problems in society today. And the reason they're putting their feelings there, guys, is because every other standard of reality has been removed. Every other standard of, there is no truth. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. There is no standard of reality that's reliable. God is just a construct people have made up. The Bible is just a bunch of myths. Uh, the family is, is fractured. Uh, the, the country, the country can't be trusted. Reason, judgment, discernment. No, those don't matter. Because your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. And so the only thing you have to gauge yourself upon is your feelings. This is, this is a, a brilliant strategy by a brilliant deceiver named Satan because it says in James 1 that no one should say God tempts because God doesn't tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we're dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires or feelings. This is what Satan wants. He wants the world to be based on how they feel, not based on truth. Jesus said you know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But they've accepted, accepted the lie. There is no truth. In the conference last week on depression, anxiety, and suicide, uh, documenting how there's been this marked rise in this latest generation of increasing depression, anxiety, and suicides, markedly going up. As I did my presentation on the neurobiology of depression and anxiety and connecting it, I point out that neurobiologically, when your love circuits fire, when you have the circuits of altruism, compassion, and love for another person, it directly turns off your fear circuits. Turning off your fear circuits, you not only experience less anxiety and have more peace, you reduce inflammatory cascades that reduce your mental illness problems and other health problems. But historically in our country, why are we getting more today? Because historically in our country, there were three big pillars of values that people were taught that were bigger than themselves. They were taught that they were to love God. God was first. Then their family was second. And their country was third. God, family, country. All three. And even even a liberal Democrat 70 years ago, who would be a Republican today, I will tell you, uh, said, don't ask what you can, what you can, what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. In other words, It's altruistic. It's about service. It's about giving, not about getting. But what's happened today in the world is that the kids of this generation, there's no God. 
Families are broken and fractured, and families are made up of things and, and different, uh, I mean, was it multiple different, it's just broken and fractured. Let's just leave it at that. And the country can't be trusted. The country doesn't have your best interests at heart. And in fact, the con- you're not here to serve your country. Your country is here to serve you. You deserve a free education. You deserve a free car, free house, free, free health care. The country is here to serve you. And this is what they're being taught. So there's nothing but self left. That's all that's left. And so we look to our feelings. And we have stuff like this show up. Well, I got my feelings hurt. And I told you how you hurt my feelings and you wouldn't apologize. And if you look what's happening in the chaos, there's so little thinking. Read the stories that come on. They're all designed to incite fear and hurt various people groups' feelings. That's what it's designed, these stories and these comments. There is no higher purpose, love, focus out there. And therefore, neurobiologically, it's only going to result in more fear, and fear leads to more selfishness, and it ultimately leads to more isolation, shame, guilt, loneliness, more depression, more suicide. This is what we're in today. The good news, and this is what the Bible says is going to happen at the end of time. You know, we have a message from our creator God that he did not design us to live this way. He designed us to live in a love relationship with him in which we love and value him and love our neighbors as ourselves. And as we live that way, it changes us, heals us, and brings unity to our communities. Our gracious Father in heaven, we are so humbled by your goodness and your patience and your love and your truth. And we ask that your spirit of love and truth be poured out Help us to have discernment, to see through the multifaceted layers of lies and distortions that are just uh, imbuing itself all over society and the world. Give us discernment to see through it. Open our eyes, transform our hearts, and make us effective lights in a very, very dark world, Lord, that this message about your character of love can go forward to free people who are really not at peace in this world. Many good-hearted people are just lost out there looking for something that will, will, will bring them peace and health and healing. And we ask that you will open avenues for this message of you to go forward and remove obstacles. You might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.